Thank you, worship team, for leading us so well this morning. It's a wonderful time to worship together with you. Well, today we're going to be continuing in our study in the gospel according to Luke, and we'll be in chapter 6 again today. The topic we're really talking about today, though, is the topic of blessing. You know, it's a wonderful term, and when we talk to ourselves about what it means to be blessed, or we talk to other people about blessing, we're often talking and thinking in terms of good health, or happiness, or just that things are going well and we're experiencing good fortune in life. And of course, these are definitely blessings of the Lord, but we don't usually talk to other people and tell them that they're blessed when we see that they're sick, or that they're going through hard times, or they're saddened, or they're enduring some difficult trials. But yet it doesn't take long for us ourselves to reflect upon Scripture, and we can think of those passages of Scripture that speak really well into these painful times in our lives, and we know we really are blessed in those times. We really are. And it's true that when we think about our own lives, even more so, we do think about how God blesses us. And I know you do. I know this church does because you tell me these kinds of stories all the time. And it's not just that we're looking into difficult times to see if we can find the little bit of good and then sort of extract that and say, well, there's the blessing. But being able to see the blessing through it all. You know, Christians have a strong and secure hope in Jesus Christ, and it inspires this strange viewpoint of blessing that only we can have as Christians. And perhaps some of us shouldn't be too hard on ourselves for not thinking like this more often, but then again, some of us, maybe we need to change our perspectives and think more along these lines. Well, in our storyline this morning in Luke chapter 6, after, immediately after Jesus selects his 12 apostles, he speaks to them and he blesses them with a blessing according to this perspective that we've just been talking about. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we do praise you this morning. All of our fountains are in you. All of our blessing comes from you. It comes from the grace that you purchased for us on the cross, the intercession that you're making for us in heaven, even now, even today, that you work powerfully in our lives. And we pray this morning that you would, by your Spirit, give us insight into your words, your words of blessing to us. And we pray this for your sake. Amen. And we're going to learn, actually, through the Gospel of Luke as we continue. We learn in the Gospel accounts, we learn in the book of Acts, that the life of the 12 apostles would actually display this pattern, where they would go through suffering and they would be blessed. And it's true for all of us who are actually disciples of Jesus Christ. In fact, Luke today is going to remind us of that, that Jesus blesses his disciples through their suffering as he meets their faithfulness with his grace. And so Luke is relating a very significant event in the life and times of Jesus Christ, this turning point in his ministry, when he actually chose who would be his 12 apostles. And there are three scenes in our passage this morning, starting in Luke 6, verse 12, and through verse 16, we see Jesus chooses the 12. And then in verses 17 to 19, crowds gather around Jesus, and he begins in verse 20 to 26 to bless all his followers with an amazing blessing. 
So we're going to actually read it as we go through it. Um, you'll also probably are aware, many of you are aware, that both Matthew and Mark record the same storyline of Jesus choosing the twelve. And we'll incorporate insights from their accounts as we need to as we go along in Luke this morning. But our purpose is to understand what God is communicating to us through the Scriptures in Luke. Now, so far in Jesus' early Galilean ministry, which in the Gospel of Luke began back in chapter 4, verse 14, we've heard Him preach His opening sermon in Nazareth in the synagogue. We heard about Him also preaching and teaching and, and healing and casting out demons in Capernaum. We've witnessed how he started calling some of his disciples to himself and observed him making great sinners into great saints. We've also cheered at his astounding victories and many controversies that have already occurred early on in his ministry. Controversies about who can forgive sin and how can that be. Controversies about the fact that Jesus would eat and drink with sinners rather than with the self-righteous controversies about fasting and Sabbath observance. And in all of these controversies, Jesus' main teaching point is to draw attention to himself that he is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has promised and that he is the one who is the Son of God and Savior of the world. And so now we're going to observe him calling his apostles and we're going to listen to him bless them and how he blesses them through their suffering and how he would meet their needs with his grace. So first, let's take a look at how he chose the twelve. It begins by him praying all night in verses 12 and on 13. We read, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. So most obviously, we observe here that he prayed all night long before this major decision that he's making. And as we've already noticed a little bit in Luke and is going to continue to be drawn out in the gospel, is that Luke makes a lot about prayer. He makes much about prayer and how important prayer is. Prayer is very important in Jesus' life, our Savior. We've already seen him standing, spending extended time in prayer surrounding his baptism. In the 40 days of fasting, in his preparation for ministry, Later on, when Peter makes his great confession, Jesus was spending a lot of time in prayer at his transfiguration and, of course, at the Garden of Gethsemane right before his crucifixion. So this wasn't a routine devotional exercise by Jesus here, which, of course, he had because we've already noticed this. If you glance back at chapter 5, verse 15, we read about how Jesus would often behave himself, and it says, but news about him was spreading even further, and great multitudes were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. But in this time, this is a special prayer time with his father before he selects the twelve, and so after a night on the mountain, Jesus is ready to choose. And he chooses twelve out of the 70, or maybe even a larger number of disciples at, the t at this time, whom he had called up to meet him. And we've already been introduced to some of these men. We've been introduced in the Gospel of Luke to Peter and Andrew, to James and John, and to Levi. And the 12 are chosen on purpose in parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel, signifying that Jesus is now creating a new people of God. And Luke emphasizes that they were called apostles here. Their apostleship and he does this throughout his writings, although at this time they weren't known as 
the apostles. But later on at their first mission assignment, if you just turn the page over, you'll see it in Luke chapter 9 at the beginning, they get their first mission assignment from Jesus, and it's brought out again that they're apostles and they're sent ones by him. They would be commissioned. They would be his chosen representatives. And we read in Luke 9, 1, that when he called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And departing, they began going about the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everyone. Now, why he chose these particular 12 men, uh, no one really knows fully. Of course, everyone loves to speculate about why these particular 12 men. But the real point is just that anyway. They're not particularly qualified. They're not. They're just chosen. And you think about it, that's true about our lives as well. You know, we're not particularly qualified to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he's not looking for those best people that might fulfill his ministry because they're so great. And wouldn't it be wonderful if so-and-so were a Christian? No, we're just chosen, but we're not particularly qualified. In fact, later on, the night before his death, Jesus would remind his disciples He said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I want to talk a little bit about apostle here before we go on and we actually look at them. You know, in the New Testament, the word apostle can have a very narrow meaning and it can have a very broad range of meaning. And that's really important to understand so we don't get confused. And here, in our passage today, it's for these 12, it's used in the most restrictive sense. It's referring to the original 12. Now, later on, the term apostle would include Matthias, because as you know, Judas would need to be replaced. And of course, then there's the untimely one, the apostle Paul, who comes along. And he talks about his own appointment in these words. He says, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, He appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles who am not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Now elsewhere in the New Testament, the term apostle is used in a much broader sense than just the twelve and Paul. Others that are used, this term is used with are Barnabas, perhaps James and Silas, and maybe Andronicus and Junius, and a few others that are unnamed. Again, it's a different use of the term, which really just literally means sent ones. Although here again, all those men I just mentioned, they all had unique callings that they had to fulfill for the gospel. And so we might want to distinguish in English the difference between a large A apostle, which is the original 12, and the small A apostle sent one. And the range of meaning even gets broader, actually, in the New Testament because there are many references, of course, to just the idea that it's anyone who's sent on a mission, like us even. You know, sometimes in our contemporary world here in the American Evangelical Church, we'll talk about missionaries being apostles or maybe some great church leader and we'll reference them as an apostle or maybe, maybe... Some of you even think you're great enough to be called an apostle, so you want to call yourself an apostle, you know, be my guest. So, 
So we mean, though, when we use those terms that we're, we're really just sent by the Lord somewhere to do ministry and calling and fair enough, but it's really important to be, I think, careful and not contribute to confusion by misusing the term or overusing it in this very broad sense of the term. And we need to remind ourselves constantly that the 12 have a unique position in church history. These are the apostles that Jesus chose. And he chose them to be the foundation of his church. He chose them to write scripture. And he chose them to have authority in his church. And so one of the most crucial aspects of apostolic authority is the writing the very words of Scripture, your New Testament. And that would become the ultimate authority along with the old. The Scriptures are the ultimate authority for the church and in our lives for what we believe and how we live our life. And we submit ourselves to that authority. It defines us as a Christian. And this is ultimately what it means when we recite, if we do recite the Nicene Creed, and it talks about we believe in the apostolic church. That's what we mean when we say that. It's a very important point for our identity. It reminds us of who we really are. And Luke's original recipients, when he wrote his gospel, they knew who they were, just as we need to know who we are, and that is that we're part of the one grand universal church of Jesus Christ, his apostolic church, that he founded. Well, now we get to those 12 men, and we read in verses 14 to 16 a list of who they are. Here, there's Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, a few observations about these lists, I think you'll find actually very helpful to you. Um, there are four lists of the 12 apostles in the Bible, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, and there's a little bit of variation in the orders, but there are some things that are common that we should notice. First of all, we see a pairing up as you would expect of the brothers. You know, we have Simon and, and Andrew, and we have James and John. And in all four of the New Testament lists, these four are always listed first. Second interesting point is that from the New Testament evidence, it seems that Peter, James, and John formed a close group of his inner three. We often see them with Jesus at very special moments, and you're probably familiar with that observation. One that you might not be familiar with is that in every single list, Peter's first, Philip is fifth, and James of Alphaeus is always ninth. And it's always the same in every list. And apparently, scholars have come up with this, that the 12 were probably subdivided then in groups of four with these three men as the leaders of those subgroups. Another important point that you probably observe, Peter's always listed first, and of course, who's always listed last? Judas, yes. The betrayer, good spot for him, yes. But Peter is the preeminent leader of the apostles. In Latin, the phrase is primer inter pares. It means first among equals. That's who he is. Jesus, in Matthew 16, says to him, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And we indeed see Peter fulfilling this role. As we read through the gospel accounts in the book of Acts, he is the one who's leading. And we have most information about Peter, actually, and not much about the rest of the twelve. 
A lot of legend has developed over the years about each one of the original 12 apostles and their ministries, and I'm not going to go into all that stuff here today. It's an interesting subject if you want to just Google it someday, but uh, don't trust everything you read, though, and what they say about them. So here are a few helpful details uh, from Scripture and some from reliable sources about what we know a little bit of some of them. So Simon Peter, of course, we already learned he's from Bethsaida. He's a fisherman. He was a disciple of John the Baptist at first, and and of course, then famously, he gets called the rock by Jesus. There's Andrew, his brother. He was also a fisherman. James, he's the first apostle who was martyred. And uh, he's the son of Zebedee. He's probably a very wealthy fisherman. And he's a cousin of Jesus. And then his brother is James. Uh, brother is John. John is the brother of James. And John is the only one of the 12 who's actually at the cross with Jesus. And he's known as the beloved and he pastored for a long time in the city of Ephesus and, and mentored others. Then there's Philip. He's also from Bethsaida. He's also a follower of John the Baptist originally. He brought, famously, he brought Nathaniel to Jesus, and, and eventually Philip ministered the gospel in Asia is where he went. The next one listed is Bartholomew. He's also known as Nathaniel, same guy, Nathaniel from Cana, and a friend of Philip. Philip introduced him to Jesus. Then there's Matthew, whom we've already been introduced to. His other name is Levi. He was a tax collector and would have been a pretty well-off individual, too. There's Thomas, also known as Didymus. Of course, Thomas is famous for his doubting, but I don't know. He should probably be more famous for his courage uh, at the end and his confession. And Thomas is uh, known to have gone to either India or to Persia to preach the gospel and was martyred for the faith. James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know a lot. Perhaps he's the brother of Matthew. Uh, Simon the Zealot, from the Canaanian. Uh, so he was a very politically oriented person, but Jesus, of course, redirected his passions for the gospel. There's Judas of James, also known as Thaddeus. That's the son of James. That's about all we know. And then, of course, there's Judas Iscariot, the uh, only non-Galilean on the list. Uh, he was the treasurer and the betrayer, and of course, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing when he's picking him, but more on that later in Luke. So, Jesus chose these 12 on purpose to multiply his ministry. You know, he'd been going around preaching the gospel in the cities and healing and, and performing miracles and drawing attention to himself that he would be the savior of the world. So, he picks these 12 men to multiply his ministry, and as we go through Luke, we're going to see the interesting things that Jesus has them do for the gospel. Now, there should be a couple obvious points for us right away as we look at this first part of the gospel here today, and that is the importance of prayer before serious decisions that we need to make. And, you know, have you ever spent a whole night in prayer, you know, before some major decision? You know, not just awake because you're anxious, but using that opportunity as a time to go before the Lord. You know, Jesus did, and he made the perfect selection of the 12 here. And then, second of all, we should really notice in this list, it's a strange group of people that he picked. It's a strange group of people that he picked. And yet, the unity that they would display and the powerful ministry that would develop among these men, and of course, the church throughout the world today is amazing. I mean, just think about it. I mean, look around who you're sitting next to. Aren't those the strangest people you've ever seen? Yeah, I'm looking at you. Yeah. So, I mean, this are, we're a strange group of people, too. And that's what God does, is He calls us together from all different walks of life and backgrounds and struggles and great gifts and 
weaker gifts, and, and He makes us a body. And we see the same thing, that the gospel is powerful in Jesus' church. And so they, at this moment, these men don't realize what their blessing is going to be from Jesus. It's going to be a blessing that comes through suffering, because they're going to suffer for the gospel, and as a result, though, they're going to prove faithful, and Jesus is going to supply them all the grace he needs. So we'll get there shortly. But next, we get set up for the sermon, Jesus' great sermon that day, the Sermon on the Plain. And so the crowds start gathering in verses 17 and 19, and we read, and he came down with them from that mountain zone, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Now, this is what's known as a ministry summary statement. There are actually a number of them in Luke's gospel, and some of the other Bible books have them. But it's a place where he just pauses in the storyline and summarizes what's been going on with Jesus and where we really are. And so Jesus comes off of the, the mountaintop to a level place. It could still be on the mountain, technically, but it's in a level place. And he brings with him these freshly chosen twelve. And the rest of the disciples that he had called up there that he didn't choose for this role. And then on this plain, this flat place, there's multitudes of other disciples, followers of Jesus that are sitting there. And then people are even coming from out of town, from out of the whole region to come and hear Jesus and to be blessed by him. They're coming from all over, not just Galilee where Jesus had been ministering. I mean, they're even coming from the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon way up in the northwest. And again, we should observe as it's almost in every single piece that Luke brings up. You know, he remember he was the travel companion to the Apostle Paul. And again, this is a way of him emphasizing the universal mission that Jesus has with his gospel to reach all peoples. He came to save from among all peoples in the world. And so these people travel to hear Jesus teach, to be healed. Even those who were troubled by demons came this day, hoping to be relieved. And the emphasis all along in this summary is the power of Jesus, for it was coming forth liberally from him that day, healing them all, so everyone's trying to reach him and touch him. Now again, this is a common ministry summary in Luke, but it serves as context because it's all emphasizing power. And so what you're going to see next are the powerful words of Jesus and the powerful blessings that can come into our life. So we begin what's known as the Sermon on the Plain in Luke that begins here in verse 20. I want to make a few comments about this and its relationship to what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So they're parallel sermons, um, and if you've read both of them, you'll see a lot of similarities between them. But what exactly is the relationship between these two sermons? Especially since we understand that they were both contained units. In other words, that Jesus preached that full sermon. And it's not just something that was pieced together later from various sayings of his. And there are a lot of similarities between the two sermons, and there are a lot of differences. And in fact, it's very cumbersome to go through them all, so I'm not going to. So you can do that on your own. And uh, so you can read them both. 
next to each other, and you can compare and contrast um, and talk about them. So the real question, though, that most people have is, is this the same sermon that's being recorded twice in two different ways, or are they actually two different sermons that Jesus preached? And so they could be the same sermon, uh, they're just recorded in, in different ways. This is the most common view, by the way. Um, and there's no real disagreement between the fact that in Matthew, Jesus is preaching in the hills, and so it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And here we got Jesus preaching on the plateau, and so it's called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. They could be the same place. That is, if you've ever been in a mountain, there are flat regions and mountains, you know, plateaus and the hills. So the sermons, you'll notice, they open essentially and close essentially the same. And so maybe Matthew and Luke simply record the event that day differently for us. That's the most common view. The, mo the traditional view, however, is that they're actually two different sermons. And uh, that Jesus preached on two different occasions. And of course, you start thinking about how Jesus preached, and you start reading the Gospels more and more, you realize, you know, Jesus said a lot of the same things a lot of the time. And so he probably went around preaching very similar things um, to people about the gospel and what it means in different Galilean cities and other places, saying the same things over and over in slightly different ways, different times. And so just to let you know, you, we can proceed with an understanding in either way. It's not going to cause any problems, which, which view we don't know enough yet to know. I'm inclined to the traditional view that they're different uh, sermon events, but it's not going to make a difference as we go through them. So the crowds gather around to hear him teach and to get healed, and, and again, we should take note that we're set up for this sermon. It's a long setup in power, because Jesus is now going to open his mouth, and he's going to teach about the blessing, and these blessings are going to be hard to hear. Blessings aren't always easy to hear. And so to know up front that these are going to be powerful words of Jesus, things that might not even fit well and sit well with us today, these are the words of our Lord to us. And so finally, we get to the point, and we get to the part where Jesus blesses his followers, and getting in verses 20 through 26. And so he begins speaking directly to the 12, of course, to everyone gathered, the audience is addressed, all the disciples, and of course, even those of us who are listening in from the 21st century, we ourselves too are the audience for this sermon. He attended the message for all the crowds. And it was given to the church by Luke. And we're actually only going to start the sermon today in this very first section in the opening of the sermon, and then we'll spend the next two weeks finishing out what Jesus has to teach us here. But today the outline in the opening is, is very easily understood because we have four blessings of joy followed by four woes of judgment, and they actually parallel each other exactly. So it's really easy to follow along. And so we read in the four blessings in verse 20 to 23, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of me, the Son of Man, rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now we notice right away that there are some similarities and differences between Matthew and Luke very immediately in the opening of these Beatitudes. 
perhaps the most obvious is Matthew speaks in more spiritual terms, right? You remember how he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and the language is more spiritual. And here in Luke, it's often noted that Luke speaks in a, with a much more social concern, and he does throughout his whole gospel too, emphasizing people's physical needs and emphasizing people's economic realities. And this is certainly true, but it's also extremely important not to overinterpret this observation and this concern. I mean, Luke most likely has exactly the same thing in mind that he's writing about and replicating Jesus' words to us as Matthew did in his gospel. And all too often, these two concerns, spiritual concerns and social concerns, often in, in our society, even today, they're still too disconnected. Um, and then we need to see them as a more connected reality and who we are and how we live as people. And Luke is going to develop this throughout his gospel, and there'll be more for that uh, to observe. But really, Jesus and Luke's concern here is spiritual. It's about the spiritual reality, though, that's also mirrored in social reality in our lives. So it's a generalization, no doubt, but generalizations are generally true. That's why they're generalizations. And so the subcategories here is, are the, the rich who exploit and the poor who are the spiritual ones. Now, of course, not all rich people exploit, but many, very many do. But, you know, we've already been introduced to one rich guy who got saved, Levi, and we're going to be introduced to another one, Zacchaeus, later on. You know, not all poor people are spiritual. I mean, it's no great blessing to be poor. But very many are, you know, and, but that doesn't mean that they're all spiritually minded. I mean, we'll, be in, we'll learn about the crowds later that are following Jesus. I mean, when he decided he was done feeding them and only wanted to teach them, they disappeared. So, in other words, this parallel between the social and the spiritual is meant to be observed and they're brought together and it's meant to cause us to think about life and about true spirituality and, and the true affections of our soul. And so, and it's not an uncommon way. This is a very common way to speak biblically. And perhaps the most helpful way to look at these blessings is to look at the final one of the four in each set and see that as really the focal point, the summary statement, really, of what Jesus is talking about. And as he's giving these blessings, in these first four verses here, it's really about what life will be like being a follower of Jesus. It's going to involve these things. And so to be blessed in our life is to be more than just happy. It's to be favored by God. Blessed are you who are poor. You could say poor in spirit if you want. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God in the present notice. Not in the future. Yours is the kingdom of God. You see, these disciples have already counted the cost and they've decided to put their trust in God and not in this world. And so, you see, they really are poor because they've made the great exchange already in giving up this world to serve Jesus Christ and to give Him everything. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. It will be worth it. A further description of these poor who are going to feast one day at that messianic banquet that the, that the prophet Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 25. Those blessed are you who weep now, 
for various reasons, over life, over sin, etc., for one day you will laugh. It's a further description of the poor who weep at the hardships of life, but take great joy in knowing that one day they will inherit the earth and be in the glorious kingdom of heaven. But then in summary, it comes, blessed are you when you are hated, when you're ostracized, when then they just, people decide to insult you, and then spurn you, and even use your name as a synonym for evil, for the sake of the glory of the Son of Man. This is the culmination of the blessings, you see. This is the experience of disciples of Jesus Christ. It is probably true for some of us here, and maybe in our broader society here, we're starting to see and receive this blessing. Ah. People ostracize you, say things against you, hate you, use you as a synonym for evil, all on account of the fact that you follow Jesus Christ. So can we embrace the blessing? We don't always have to fight. So in that day of persecution, Jesus commands his followers to rejoice. But notice, not only rejoice, he says, get up and leap for joy. What a weird thing to say. You know, when blessing comes like this, to leap for joy. And, and it can be done because if you do something like that, it actually is a conduit for blessing to come into your soul. Because you're putting your all into worshiping Jesus and suffering for him. Such a disciple knows that in heaven his reward is great and he's soon going to inherit it. And this is the history of all the faithful. And we are assured and encouraged by these words of Jesus. I mean, persecution for Christ, whether it's a small little bit that we experience or whether it's a lot that we experience, it proves our discipleship and it assures us in the faith. And this is, this is a constant theme throughout true believers in the Old Testament true believers in the New Testament, true believers all throughout church history, all around the world, even to today. Now, I want to draw your attention to a particular passage later on. You can turn to this one. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. But, you know, Peter was here this day. And this section is a reflection, a meditation of Peter's on what Jesus was speaking. And of course, not just speaking on this occasion, but speaking on multiple occasions. In fact, the whole book of 1 Peter really can fit in here. But this particular section, notice what he says, the Apostle Peter. It's really a commentary, if you will, on Luke chapter 6. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. I see where he got that from. Because no one likes suffering. It would be weird if you do. But no one likes suffering. And, but yet, being called to follow God and Jesus Christ, it should be something commonly understood as part of our life. It's part of the calling. And so we shouldn't be surprised as though it shouldn't happen to us. It should. Jesus already said. He already blessed us with it. But to the degree, Peter continues, that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. See where he gets that from? So that at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, 
you are blessed. It's like a commentary on Luke 6. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, this, these four blessings in Luke 6 are really a short list of the general lot, the general destiny of followers of Jesus Christ. People who give their all to follow Him. It's going to be often a poor and persecuted route that we take in life, but the reversal of fortune is coming. And the big idea is that all the sacrifices and the persecution, and as they increase in our lives, so do the blessings in our life. And I hope we can come to see that and experience that, even though it's really difficult. No one's saying it's easy. It takes a lot of faith. Well, these four items here also speak to the character qualities and values that true disciples possess. And it's going to come out even more clearly now in the four woes that are pronounced by Jesus and paralleled in verses 24 to 26. And so we read here, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Amazing parallel, isn't it? These four woes don't have a a corresponding parallel in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. But these woes that Jesus is speaking are the language of the Old Testament prophets. And we learn just as much about discipleship from these woes as we did from the blessings above. Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. These are those people who live for their possessions, who choose the present world over the future world. These are those who, as one commentator picket, decided to choose the loser's trophy of life. In Luke, Jesus is going to talk a lot, much more about money and spirituality and how they're all connected. And this is just sort of like the opening shot about that topic. And it's going to come up more and more in the gospel. Woe to you who are well fed now. Are you going to go hungry? It's a further description of these rich who are going to hunger in the torment of hell. Wanting release and satisfaction, but they won't get it. These are the types of people who consume at the expense of others and their needs and don't even care. Woe to you who laugh now, for you're going to mourn and weep. It's a further description of the rich who are going to wail in the torment of hell. These are those who laugh at other people in smugness and derision and their own boastfulness and self-centeredness at those who are less fortunate in this world. In summary, then, woe to you when all men speak well of you. See, this would be because you live for wealth and power and reputation and image and everything that fits in with the world system. Of course they're going to praise you because you're one of them. And this is in contrast to the fourth blessing above where it says, blessed are you when people hate you. And it concludes, so they did to the prophets. This one concludes, and so they did to the false prophets. There have always been two groups of people in Israel, the true Israel and the false Israel. Jesus would later teach on the night of his crucifixion, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, there are two classes of people. There's the Christian and the worldling. And sometimes worldlings like to, you know, dance around as if they're Christians. 
But you've heard of the two classes by their characteristics and their values here. So which group do you belong to? Are you aligned with Jesus and His values and the life that He promises and all the blessings He brings? Or are you aligned with the world and its values and, and its life and the blessings that it would offer you? If you're in the second category, maybe you want to switch your allegiance today from the world to Jesus. And if you do, blessings are going to follow. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus who can forgive your sins and remake your soul. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and was raised from the dead for your justification and for life in the Spirit that would come into you and totally change your life and shift your affections so that you can experience the blessings in the first half of this sermon section. You know, Jesus blesses His followers in real time. You notice not all these blessings are just reserved for the future. He meets us exactly where we are in the troubles in our lives, and as we Continue in faithfulness, he brings grace into our life and, and shows us that he loves us. So I hope you'd like to receive these blessings from the Sermon on the Plain. I mean, they might be a little bit disconcerting to you. Maybe you didn't know following Jesus was going to be such a difficult road. But the blessings are worth it. And we should also take note that, you know, this hardship and blessings that Jesus talks about, that would all happen to all these apostles. It would happen to the church, and you can read about it. It's in the Bible. It's in the rest of the accounts of the Gospels. It's in the book of Acts. You can see a lot of it in the epistles that are written, the letters later on. You can study church history, and you can see this pattern just constantly repeated as the church gets persecuted around the world and throughout history, but blessed beyond imagination by Jesus. In fact, you can even see it today around the world too, maybe even in your own life or some friends of yours. Jesus blesses his disciples through suffering. And causes us to walk faithfully because he gives us his grace. So what do you do with blessings, though? I mean, you can sort of read them and say, okay, well, it's sort of nice. Jesus gave me this blessing. But how do you actually get to experience that blessing? What do you have to do to really feel that in your soul? And what you do with a blessing is you receive it. That's how you get a blessing. You receive it. And what that means is you prayerfully meditate upon them and the truth that they proclaim. That's how you do it. You're going to do it, you're going to have to do it on your own. No one else can do it for you. So you need to sit down with the scriptures, these verses, in the midst of your adversities, and pray them back to Jesus. And ask him to show you and to bless your soul in the midst of pain. And seek then to gain what they promise by living out being a faithful disciple. Would you do that this week with these verses? Your life will be blessed if you do. You spend time on them. And I want to encourage us all to live our lives all out for the Son of Man, as he talks about in this passage, that is Jesus, our divine Savior, and to give our resources for his glory and enjoy living in dependence upon him. You know, as you think about some of these themes in here, you know, one that always stands out but often gets skipped over in our society is that, you know, it's okay in a wealthier society, to become poorer, to give away some of our resources for the kingdom of God. In fact, it can be quite a blessing to have a little bit less than your neighbor who makes the same amount of money that you do, because you've decided that you want to give some of that to advance the kingdom of God. That's okay. And be joyful when you might even get maligned for that choice because you didn't buy the same toys that your neighbor did. You know, and all Christians are blessed in these types of choices 
It's a calling, and being a Christian is not always easy. Usually it's actually difficult. And so we shouldn't be measuring the quality of life from the values and perspectives of people who are aligned with the world and its goals. You know, and don't come to Jesus if you think you're going to get rich because that's not part of the gospel. Don't come to Jesus because you think your life's just going to be nice and easy and you're going to always be healthy. That's not part of the gospel. And don't promise that to anybody either. By following Jesus, you know, you're probably not going to amass riches and you're probably not going to gain widespread popularity in the world. By following Jesus, though, you're going to have a lot of joy and a lot of blessings, and you're going to have an eternal inheritance. You know, and something else I found that's important to mention often here is don't be overly concerned, sort of on the flip side of what I just said, don't be overly concerned that maybe you're not as miserable as you could be. (laughs) Yeah, I know there are some ascetics out there, you know, And uh, so don't be overly concerned that you're not as miserable as you could be. I mean, that's not the goal, is to go out and try to make your life miserable, right? And uh, it's also, by the way, not our goal to look at other Christians and say, you know, he needs to be a little bit more miserable, right? That's not our goal either. We don't meddle in other people's lives. We deal with our own lives and our own issues. But, you know, it's also very important for us to recognize, especially in the society that we live in, that we all live, you know, and I preach this in different parts of the world too, in different places, we all live in the society in which God placed us. You don't live somewhere else. You live here, and you live in this context with, with the jobs that you've been given, the callings that you've been given, the family, the responsibilities. That's where you've been called. And so live in that reality and realize that economic situations are also relative. But the goal then is to be faithful in our calling where we've been called and to experience greater grace and blessing because we give our whole life to Jesus. Now the Sermon on the Plain is going to continue and it's going to be equally challenging and it's going to be equally a blessing for us. The next two Sundays we're going to be covering the rest of it. Um, Next week in verses 27 to 38, Jesus is going to be calling and talking about love and mercy going to be calling for that. We'll talk about love and mercy. And then finally, in the last section, 39 to the end, he calls for righteousness in our life and fruit and wisdom in the way we live. And so we'll look at those at the due time. But for today, we want to continue to learn from Jesus what it means to to live in his presence all out for him, to experience the blessing of suffering and him bringing that blessing into our souls. So let me pray for us and we'll continue in our worship this morning. The Lord Jesus, we praise you above all that you are the example for us in your life even of what it means to suffer for the glory of God and to be blessed because of it. And because we know you went through it as one of us, the incarnate Son of God, coming down and living in our infirmity and experiencing the pains of our life, that you understand our situation. Everybody's situation in this room. You understand our situation And you want to meet it with grace and blessing and love in our lives. And I pray that you would do that this morning and that we would be able as a people to experience the blessings of the Sermon on the Plain as you preach to your disciples that they would be ours. And we pray these things for your glory in this church. Amen.